So promises have power. I read recently about a McDonald's worker. He finished college, four-year degree, in a year and a half. Now, any college students, you know, yeah, I see someone, a dad poking a son back there. This is how he explained his accomplishment. I completed a promise I made to my mother a long time ago. That's the meaning, he said, because I told her when I dropped out the first time that I'd go back. So his promise to his mother, it empowered him to complete his promise. So God's promises, they have power as well. They they have even greater power. And as we devote ourselves to God's promises, we see this power in our lives. God's promises bring about his purposes. God's promises produce our devotion to him. God's gospel promises unite us in faith to Christ, making us righteous in God's sight. God's promises conform us to his image. As we devote ourselves to God's promises, we see his power in our lives. In the book of Genesis, as we've been going through, we've seen the power of God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their family. We've seen God's promise as it's in in the process of redeeming them from the fading, shadowy glories of this world. His promise is transferring them into His eternal glory, His eternal kingdom of glorious light. Through God's promise, these patriarchs, by faith, they're taking hold of things eternal in heavenly places, invisible realities. This morning, we will again see God's promise working in the lives of Jacob and his son Joseph as they devote themselves to different aspects of this promise. These are the three different aspects we'll look at. The land of God's promise, the seed of God's promise, that's the family of God's promise, and the grace of God's promise. Let's begin by looking at how Jacob devoted himself to the land of God's promise. Read with me Genesis 47, starting in verse 28 to verse 31. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. 
Because of Jacob's devotion to God's promise, Jacob chose a humble, a seemingly insignificant burial in the land of Canaan over a glorious burial in Egypt. Right? Jacob could have had Joseph, he, he could have had Joseph bury him in a globally dominant, culturally important metropolis surrounded by gold and beetles and you know cat statues and hieroglyphics. But Jacob's devotion is not to worldly glory. His devotion is to God's promise. By insisting on burial in Canaan, Jacob is taking hold of his eternal inheritance in God's presence. Back in Genesis 28, as Aaron discussed last week, God had appeared to Jacob and promised the land of Canaan would belong to him and to his offspring. In the the first four verses of our next chapter, in chapter 48, Joseph comes to Jacob as Jacob's nearing his death. And in this moment, Jacob recounts to Joseph God's promise. Look at chapter 48, verse 3 with me. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. God had made Canaan the earthly representation of his dwelling place, a new garden sanctuary, a new Eden of sorts. God had made Jacob and his family the very co-heirs of this earthly representation of God's everlasting dwelling place. Jacob's devotion to this promise led him to bind Joseph to this very serious promise, to bury Jacob and Canaan in this seemingly unimportant cave. While this cave seems insignificant to the world, Jacob knows this cave is the land of God's promise, the promised everlasting presence. In the resurrection, Jacob wants to be in Canaan. After death, he wants to be in the presence of Abraham and Isaac. Most important of all, he wants to be in the very eternal presence of God. While we don't need to be making plans to be buried in Israel, I hope none of you are making plans to have yourself buried in Israel, we each have to choose whether we belong in the midst of the glories of Egypt, in all the glitter and glory of this world, or whether we belong among the eternal glories of Christ. Do we want our monument here on earth, maybe in Los Angeles or in D.C.? in New York, or in Jacksonville? Or are we willing to appear culturally insignificant, maybe backwards, for the eternal significance of Christ? And just as God's promise shaped Jacob's understanding of his life after death, the glory that he'll receive after death, so it shaped his understanding of his current circumstances, his approaching death, outside of the land that God had promised him. And this was a, 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 an apparent difficulty. On Jacob's deathbed, 
with God's promise to him seemingly unfulfilled, he still believes God's promise. But how? Well, Jacob, he's been granted true faith. A faith that could see that God's promise extended into reality beyond the grave. When Jacob had first arrived in Egypt 17 years prior, he appeared to define his life by the circumstances, the evil that he'd faced in his life. But now, after 17 years of having experienced God's preservation in Egypt, experiencing this reunion with Joseph in Egypt, Jacob is no longer allowing his life circumstances to determine his faith, his life perspective. Jacob has learned to allow God's promises to shape his perspective on his life circumstances. And like Jacob, we must learn to form our understanding of life and its hardships by God's promises, not the other way around. When our interpretation of life seems to run hard into what God has promised, God's promises must prevail over our hearts and our minds. So someone might think, God says He loves me. God God says He wants what's best for me. But I'm so tired all the time. I'm so lonely. I'm sick, and I'm sick sick and tired of being sick all the time. How can God both want my good and have planned for me to be in such suffering? You see how this, this sounds like God says the promised land will be mine, but I'm about to die in Egypt. Does Jacob conclude, oh, this promise must be false? No. He concludes, the promise is for me after my death. So whatever you do, Joseph, bury me in Canaan. Promise me you'll bury me in Canaan. And so also with us, we can take to the bank all of Christ's promises. Like his beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. If we don't feel the blessing today, if we don't feel blessed today in the heat of persecution and suffering, then we know for certain the blessing is for our eternal tomorrow. So we can say with Jacob, Joseph, whatever you do, bury me in Canaan. So we've seen Jacob's devotion to the land of God's promise. Now let's look at Joseph's devotion to the seed of God's promise, to the family of God's promise. In Genesis 48, 1-7, Joseph comes to Jacob as Jacob's nearing death to have his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who are either old teenagers or young adults now. They're probably in about their 20s because they're born before Jacob came to, to Egypt, and he's been in Egypt for 17 years now. So Joseph comes with these young adults to have them 
adopted by Jacob. Read with me verse 5. This is chapter 48, verse 5. Jacob speaking here. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. So what are we to understand about Joseph's having his sons adopted by his father, by Jacob? Well, just as Jacob rejected the vain glories of Egyptian burial, so Joseph, for the sake of God's promise, rejected the vain glories of an Egyptian political lineage. Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, they're half Egyptian, right? Joseph got married to an Egyptian. She was the daughter of a prominent Egyptian priest, and Joseph could have set them up for great political prominence and glory in Egypt. Think of it, a dynasty of Egyptian governors leading Pharaoh to bless God's people. Doesn't that sound like what God's plan ought to be? Instead, Joseph's devotion to God's promises led him to forsake this worldly path of easy succession to political power and political security. He chose a path foolish in the world's eyes. He had his primary heirs adopted directly into the lineage of Jacob, a shepherd. This is like Joseph could have led his sons to attend. He could have got them easy access into Harvard or Yale and then into uh, a, a position on the, the Biden campaign or the Trump campaign in, in their next administration. Or maybe he could have got them a corporate position at Apple or Google or some big name Fortune 500 company. Instead, this is like Joseph, he led his sons to prioritize faithfulness to the local church, to its ministries and to its members, rather than dedicating themselves to all these you know, secular things that they, they could have dedicated themselves to get all these things that looks good on their resume. You know, if you're wanting to get Harvard, into Harvard and Yale, good luck putting, I dedicated all my time to Grace Covenant Church. Don't you want to accept me into to Yale? Good luck. Good luck with that. Now, it's not wrong to go to college or even, even Harvard or Yale or to po- possess political or corporate power. After all, God exalted Joseph to political power and political prominence. But our ultimate aspirations and our aspirations for our children should not be for cultural significance or economic prosperity and well-being, but for faithful devotion to Christ and His church. Even if this results in cultural irrelevance, or economic hardship, economic hard times. By uniting his sons to Jacob, 
Joseph removed any path for his descendants to dwell in the comfort of Egyptian palaces. He ensured that one day they would dwell in the harshness of Canaan's pastures. Joseph cut off Ephraim and Manasseh from inheriting the whole world because he wanted them grafted into Abraham, into Isaac, and into Jacob. Ultimately, he wants them grafted into Christ. He doesn't want heirs of Egyptian power. He wants heirs of God's eternal promise. See, Joseph, he had pursuits for his son. He had ambitions for his sons, but ones that were far grander than empty Egyptian glory and economic privilege. Remember Genesis 17.6. God described his promise to Abram this way. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. See, Joseph wants his sons to be kings but not in Egypt, kings in God's everlasting presence. So where are we placing our hope? Are we directing our hope to our current or future political leaders or to some political or, or cultural change? Is our hope in Mike Johnson, the new evangelical speaker of the house, who seems like a pretty great guy? Certainly, we can pray for and work toward having godly leaders like Joseph. But our hope is in Christ and in his eternal promises. As we raise up our children or maybe our grandchildren, where are we directing their hopes, their dreams, their values? You see, a faithful, God-fearing member of our local church is in God's kingdom, and, and this is whether they're an unknown salesperson, a hardworking administrative assistant, a, a local school teacher, a housewife. In God's kingdom, they're far more significant than the President of the United States. So, yes, we do need to teach our kids about the history of our culture and the, you know, the movers and the shakers in our culture. But what's more important? is that we teach them that the men and women around you that you see in your local church in and through Christ will reign in, with Christ in the heavenly kingdom. That's far more significant than, you name it, the Beatles or Elvis or J, JFK. You know, the men and women around you, heirs reigning with Christ for eternity. And look with me at how Joseph's faithful devotion to the seed, the seed of God's promise, the family of God's promise, has results in Joseph's immediate blessing. Jacob does not just place Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, in the order of birthright. Jacob places them in the front of the line. He places them in Reuben's, the oldest, and Simeon's, the second, spots in the order of birthright. We see this exchange of birthright first here in verse 5, when Jacob says, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Now, it's not completely clear to us right then, but this is explained later in Scripture, actually in 1 Chronicles. It's explained in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. The chronicler says, Reuben was the firstborn, 
But because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. So that he could not be, that's Reuben, could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. And we actually see this fulfilled in the rest of the Old Testament. After Israel gets divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom after Solomon's death, the prophets, they begin calling the northern kingdom Ephraim. So that might help you explain as you're reading the prophets and you hear, why why are they talking about Ephraim? Why are they talking about Joseph's oldest son? Ephraim represents Israel, the northern ten tribes of the kingdom of Israel, because the birthright was his. By forsaking the privileges of Egypt, by humbling and emptying himself, Joseph received an even greater blessing, a wonderful gift of grace. His son, Ephraim, received the birthright of the firstborn, becoming the tribe above all tribes in Israel. And this points us to Christ. He was truly God, the eternal Son of God. When he descended from heaven, he could have come as Caesar in a palace. Instead, he emptied himself, came as a peasant in a manger. He humbled himself all the way to death on the cross so that he would be the ultimate heir of the Abrahamic promise. Is that by his gift of grace, we would be co-heirs of this promise. So like Jacob, like Jacob, like Joseph, like Christ, we can also empty ourselves of the vain glories, the vain pursuits of this world, and we can identify with God's lowly, his seemingly insignificant, suffering people. We can seek to serve as Christ served, knowing that we too will be exalted to reign with Christ if we suffer with him. So we've seen Jacob's devotion to the land of God's promise. We've seen Joseph's devotion to the family of God's promise. Now let's look at Jacob's devotion to the grace of God's promise. In verses 8 through 12, Jacob and Joseph go through steps of a formal adoption process, transferring Ephraim and Manasseh from Joseph into the inheritance directly into Jacob. But then in verse 13 to 21, we, along with Joseph, are shocked. We're shocked to see that Jacob exalts the line of inheritance, in in the line of inheritance, the younger brother, Ephraim, over the older brother, Manasseh. Read with me verses 13 and 14 of chapter 48. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim and Manasseh, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, And Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near. And Israel, that's Jacob, stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim 
who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. In verse 15, right after this, Jacob then transfers to the boys all the promises of the Abrahamic promise. God's blessing, a great name, a multitude, and the land. They're going to dwell in the land. As a picture of God's sovereign grace in this promise, Jacob crosses his arms and places Ephraim, the younger son, over Manasseh, the older son, in the order of the right of inheritance. You see, Jacob here, he's operating in the role as the sovereign bearer of God's promise. In an imitation of God himself, Jacob overturns the natural order of things, giving the second-born son, Ephraim, the birthright. See, I don't think this is teaching us that it's sinful for first-born sons to receive a birthright. For God designed the world in such a way that firstborn sons would be the primary heirs or the, the trustees of an estate. We see this in Deuteronomy 21, 17. This is, this is what Deuteronomy 21, verse 17 says. A man shall acknowledge the firstborn son by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. So it appears to be that God's design is that the firstborn sons should carry on the family leadership by by receiving a double portion of the inheritance after uh, the, the father has died. But God's design for firstborn sons, it also helps us explain Joseph's response in verse 17 and 18. Let's look at see how he responds. It says, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. Again, I don't think Joseph is being worldly-minded here, though it certainly could have been perceived by Jacob to have been dishonoring for Joseph to interrupt this important moment of blessing to try to physically move his hands to his other son. But Jacob doesn't take offense. He seems to understand Joseph's concern. So it seems that Joseph was expecting Manasseh to receive the birthright according to God's natural design, so he, he assumes that Jacob, who's hard of seeing, it, the text says that he's hard of seeing at this time, that he, that he simply made a mistake. He accidentally, he thought this was Ephraim, he thought this was Manasseh. And, but what, what Joseph doesn't realize, and what Jacob makes clear in his response, is that Jacob, he's not operating in a mistaken natural capacity. Like, if you remember Jacob's father Isaac, who's also hard of of seeing, and he accidentally places Jacob over Esau, that's not what's going on here. Rather, Jacob, he's operating in a prophetic capacity as the sovereign trustee of God's promise, who has the right to give the promise to whom he chooses. 
This leads us to ask, why does God have Jacob reverse the natural creation order here? Why does he exalt the younger Ephraim over the older Manasseh in the birthright of the Abrahamic inheritance? I believe it's to teach Joseph, it's to teach Israel, and it's to teach all of us a lesson. God's gift of the Abrahamic promise is never based in the natural order or the natural design of things. It's always based in sovereign election, in his sovereign grace. Jacob's choice of Ephraim over Manasseh was not based in Ephraim's natural order, his natural good looks, his greater righteousness, but in Jacob's and ultimately God's sovereign election. God regularly reverses his own design of birthright inheritance to magnify his sovereign grace in election. He placed Abel and later Seth over Cain, the firstborn son. He placed Shem over Japheth, the firstborn son. He placed Abram over his older brother Haran and, and Abram over all the nations. He places Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over Reuben and Simeon, and now Ephraim over Manasseh. All this is to magnify God's sovereign grace in election. He chooses whom he chooses. This would have been a particularly helpful lesson for Joseph. Jacob's exaltation of Joseph's line might have, might have us in Joseph questioning. Has Jacob exalted Joseph's line because Joseph and his line are more righteous? After all, remember what 1 Chronicles 5 once said, that, that Reuben lost his birthright because of his sin. Doesn't that mean that Joseph gets the birthright because of his righteousness, because his righteousness merits it? No. Reuben and Simeon, because of their sin, deserve to lose their birthright. That doesn't mean that Joseph's sons deserve it. Or Jacob's exaltation of Joseph's line. It might have us thinking that once again... Jacob's back to his old ways. He's playing favorites here. He's favoring the firstborn son of his more naturally beautiful wife, Rachel. But again, this doesn't seem to be the case. And we see this in this seemingly obscure statement in verse 7, where Jacob all of a sudden mentions that Rachel, she died back in Canaan. I think what, what he's saying here is that his days of showing her favoritism are over. She's gone. I'm not showing her favoritism here. Instead, Jacob, like God, in his sovereign grace, has chosen these two sons of Joseph over Joseph's 11 brothers. And he makes this clear by exalting Joseph's younger son, Ephraim, over the older Manasseh. All to magnify God's sovereign grace in choosing who receives the Abrahamic promise. And that's so good for us, because we're Gentiles. We're not the firstborn son of, of Abraham. We are not of Abraham. And so God has chosen us, Gentiles, sinners, to be heirs with Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, when we talk about God's sovereignty in election, some people can get really upset. They, they get upset that God, in his sovereignty, would choose some and exalt them over others. It's kind of like 
if you've ever been one of those fundraisers where there's a raffle and you put in money, you know it's going to go to the charity, but hey, maybe you'll get a basket too of like some cool goodies. And let's say you win, you get chosen, but then you can't even enjoy it because all the people who didn't get the basket, you know, I'm just going to mourn, I'm going to grieve. Or, you know, the, the kid who gets picked for the kickball team, but then grieves because all the other kids didn't get picked. Right, we get so focused on Manasseh, the older brother who was not chosen by Jacob, that we can't marvel in delight in the fact that Ephraim, an undeserving sinner, got chosen as heir of the Abrahamic promise. Remember, neither Ephraim nor Manasseh, nor any of the brothers, nor any of us deserve the inheritance in the Abrahamic promise. What we all deserve is the eternal punishment of God. Separation from Christ, separation from His promises. What we all deserve is His wrath in hell. None of us can deserve more grace when it's something completely undeserved by definition. No one, neither we nor our children, nor the unreached people groups in the world, deserve the Son of God to come and die for them. No one deserves to hear the message of the gospel, but we want everyone to hear it. No one, not even our son or our daughter, deserves to receive the gift of faith when they hear the gospel. Now, of course, we want them and we pray for them to receive the gift of faith. So instead of questioning that God has sovereignly chosen Ephraim over Manasseh, we can be in awe. We can be filled with thanks that God has chosen any sinners to be his children, heirs of his eternal covenant. We can be in awe of a God who, in his sovereign grace, freely gives us in Christ an imperishable inheritance that we do not deserve. Let's be in awe today. Let's give thanks and worship him. Band, if you would please now come up. Church family, this is the power of God's promises. His promises are how we persevere in faith to the end. They are how God preserves us blameless on the day of the great appearing of Christ. Through his promises we take hold of, or rather we are taken hold of by his invisible, unapproachable light, the eternal life that God has ordained for us. These promises are how we bear up under our sufferings, how we resist the siren song of Babylon that's all around us. God's promises produce our faith, and they hold us fast to the end. Listen to what the Apostle Peter declares in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4. to 4. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which that is, by his glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, 
so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. His divine power has granted to us in Christ all things, a home in the eternal land of Canaan, an eternal inheritance in the royal family of God, in God's sovereign grace, an eternal election in Christ before time began. These are precious and very great promises. Through these promises, we are like Joseph and we are like Jacob, becoming partakers of the divine nature, being conformed to God's likeness through the image of Christ. These are God's words of life. Let's devote ourselves to them. Let's see their power working in our lives as he delivers us from the corruption in the world because of sinful desire. This deliverance from corruption in the world is the power of God's promises. And let's let's stand now. Let's raise our voices to him. Let's ask that he would increase our devotion to his promises our devotion to his words of life.